So uh, Matthew 17, starting at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a mount, high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before, before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Good morning. Uh, very often when we teach the Bible, when I teach the Bible to you, I try to think of something in culture, a film, a story, a journey to the theatre, a walk in the park that relates to the topic that the Bible passage teaches us about. But this week I've come up blank because we're looking at something that's called the transfiguration. It's unique. There's nothing like it in any literature that I can think of, uh, modern or ancient. It's unparalleled in the Bible itself. And in it, we see God's glory revealed in Jesus. But it's a unique passage. But notice the context. The, the near context is darkness has been growing, it's been developing. A, a Hans Zimmer score wouldn't be inappropriate at this point, or a, a Christopher Nolan film, where darkness is, is the normal um, atmosphere. Darkness is growing, it's been growing since Peter has said, you're the Christ. And then Jesus, chapter 16, verse 21, immediately begins to talk about his death. And it's there at the end of this passage as well, Verses 9 to 13, you see Jesus talking again about uh, the prophecy of a second Elijah. Not Elijah in the Old Testament, but a second Elijah, a forerunner who would come and pave the way for the Messiah, for the Christ, who is Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus says, it's not me. It was John the Baptist. But darkness is coming and darkness is increasing. And the darkness of chapter 16 and the darkness of verses 12 and 13 at the end of our passage is only broken by this wonderful shard of light, the transfiguration. Chapter 17, verse 1, it's like a, a camera lens or an aperture that opens for a split second. We see the glory of God in the person of Jesus, that interspersed and surrounded by darkness of chapter 16 and at the end of our passage as well. But in this moment of glory, this moment of light that Matthew records for us, he wants to show us. He wants to show us through the transfiguration who Jesus is, why he came, and then how we should respond. 
as always, there's three points. So let's look at the first one. The transfiguration, I believe, tells us and shows us very clearly who Jesus is, who he is. Now, in the Old Testament, when God led his people out of bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh's heel, he, he led his people through the wilderness in a unique way. His glory was revealed in a unique way as he led his people by day it was a pillar of cloud the glory of God in a, in a pillar of cloud so it could be seen against the brightness of the noonday sun and and at night time the pillar of cloud was replaced by a burning pillar of fire a column from uh, earth right the way up to heaven so that God's people could see where God wanted them to follow him into the promised land and into Mount Sinai the glory of God is is unparalleled. It was there as God led his people. It was there as God judged uh, his people's enemies as they went through the Red Sea and the waters came down. It was there as God's glory descended on Mount Sinai and his purity of his nature and person meant that no one, no one, no human, no animal could even touch any part of Mount Sinai or they would die. It's the purity of his person it's the glory of his nature. Moses in Exodus 34 longed to see something of God's glory. And God said, no, you can't see me. No one. No one can see me and live. You can't look at me. My perfection is too much for you. My glory is too great for you. It would crush you. It would destroy you. And then we get to Matthew chapter 17. And what do we see again? Verse 1. We're on a mountain again. It's not Mount Sinai, but it's another mountain. Look at verse five. Verse five, like Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, here we hear the voice of God again. Look at verse three, sentence three. There's, there's Moses again. There's Elijah again, who also saw the glory of God at 1 Kings chapter 19. And most of all, in sentence five, verse five of Matthew 17, we meet the glory cloud again. God's glory is descending on another mountain. We hear his voice. We see something of his splendor with the context before and after of darkness. This transfiguration moment is unique because it shows us who Jesus is. There's something of contrast here, a huge contrast from the Old Testament to the New Testament, though. The glory of Mount Sinai that you can see on the screen in front of you. The awesomeness of his purity and person, his brilliance, like the glory of the sun at the center of our universe, is not remote. It's not distant. It's emanating from a person. It's emanating from a person, from Jesus Christ himself. Verse 2. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, this is astounding. This is astounding in the context of the Bible. Nothing compares to this in the ministry of Jesus. The glory of God, his brilliance, his purity, his, his glory and weightiness, his importance, is now coming from Jesus. God's glory is walking the earth. It's manifest in a human divine person called Jesus Christ, who's the son of God. Now, what does that mean? It means a lot. 
in Exodus 34, when Moses met with God on the mountain, he, he descended and he came down and his face was radiating with the glory of God for a period of time. His face continued to shine just as the moon reflects the sun's light. But here we're shown that Jesus, Jesus is the sun. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He is he's emanating. He's the source of the glory of God. In narrative form, Matthew 17 says what Hebrews 1 says. Jesus Christ is not an expression of God's glory. He's not a reflection of God's glory. He is the very person and the glory of God. God's glory is on display, his shattering beauty, his infinite glory, his overwhelming importance is seen in his son. God's spirit is at work to, to reveal the glory of God, not just for his disciples, but for anyone who reads this passage with an eye to see. You see, Jesus is the glory of God on display. He's the radiance of God's glory in human form. He's the exact representation of his being. So you could say, what's God's like? Well, this is what God is like. Look at him. And as God the Father says, listen to him. We need to be in no doubt at all. God is not hidden. God's glory is on display in creation. It's the work of the divine craftsman on display in all its brilliance and creative power. But here, here in the person of Jesus, you see God's glory fully revealed in his son. But he's not alone. There's Moses and there's Elijah. And I'm not sure how much clearer Matthew can be. Jesus is not a prophet like Elijah. He's not a, a law a teacher like Moses was. They point to him. Every prophet and teacher of the law point to Jesus. They make promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. And so when we see Jesus, when we hear his words, we see the very glory of God revealed to us. So becoming a Christian is not grasping an abstract principle. It's not trying to understand a great uh, a mountain of data. Matthew is saying this is the key to understanding Christianity. It's about a person whose name is Jesus. And as we relate to this person, we see and sense the glory of God. The heart of ultimate reality is not a concept but it's a human divine, a divine human person whose name is Jesus, who can love you and whom you can love. You can adore him and delight in him. He's not a force field. He's not an emanation in creation. He exists outside of time and space. He needs nothing. And yet he's chosen to condense himself and take on human flesh. And so now we can love him. And now he can relate to us as a person to a person. Jesus is not just a nice guy. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. Matthew 17 is saying, as you look at him, you see the exact representation, the exact being and nature. You see God on display. You see the glory of God on another mountain surrounded by Moses and Elijah. It shows us greatness, but that's not all. It shows us what Jesus 
came to do. It's the second point. The transfiguration <laughs> shows us not just who Jesus is. The transfiguration shows us what Jesus came to do. Now, I've already mentioned that the glory of God is revealed most clearly in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. The strength of God's arm is shown in his redeeming and rescuing his people out of slavery. No one can get in direct contact with God. You can hear his voice, but you cower. No one can see him and live. You might see the back of God as Moses saw or as Elijah sensed as he was tucked in the cleft of a rock in the book of 1 Kings. But no one can come close to God and survive. And as modern people, we're offended at that very concept. I mean, who does God think he is? No God is that great. I won't follow a God like that. I want a God of my own making. I want a God who answers to me. I want a God who's there when I need him. I bow to no one. It's a modern sensibility. I mean, just imagine if the Old Testament is offensive. Just imagine. Don't do this, please. Imagine you could go outside and just look directly as a son, as this little girl is on the screen. If you went and looked directly at the sun for a number of minutes, its power, its warmth would be felt, but its illuminosity, the strength of its rays would burn and ruin your eyesight forever. Its greatness, its, its very essence, millions of miles away from us is so great that it's too much for us. You might have felt that in another way when you, uh, you might think you're beautiful and then you meet someone who's crazy beautiful and you feel small and insignificant. You might be a great musician or a, a great sports person in your own time, but then you hear someone who can really play. Then you watch someone who's a professional sports person and then you feel altogether different. That's true on a spiritual level as well. Throughout the Bible, when there's someone who sees the glory of God, they never stand up straight. They always bow before his majesty. They take off their shoes. They bow to the floor. They cover their ears and their eyes. They, they turn away because they see God's greatness, his purity, his majesty, and their smallness, their unworthiness, their unkemptness. They're undone. Because that shows us that our being can't bear his being. Our nature can't bear his nature, his glory, his holiness is far, far too much for us. That's the great dilemma of the Bible. We were created for him. We were made by him and for him. We were made to see and enjoy his beauty and his glory, but we can't because of our sin. We're not just broken. We're rebels to the core. And that's why in the Old Testament, when God wanted to dwell with his people, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to build a portable tent so that wherever I am, you can be. It's like a force field, a portable force field where the glory of God could be mediated. There was this huge tent that we put up in the center of God's people wherever they went. And at the center of the tabernacle would be the most important tent of all, the, the most holy place where the ark of God would be, where God's glory would be manifest amidst the angels, the cherubim on top of the ark. God wanted to be with his people, but there was the issue of sin. There was the veil on the outside and there was all sorts of parameters and provisions so that God could dwell with his people in this defense shield. 
Now, why do I say that? Look at verse four. You won't understand the importance of verses four to six unless you get that background. Peter sees the brilliance of the glory of God in Jesus. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, three tents for us. It's the word tabernacle. I will put up three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter doesn't say, I'll put up a tent like I did on Monday night and I slept in it with the boys overnight. Then we got cold and came back in the house the day after. Peter doesn't say, I'm going to put up tents. He doesn't say we need a tent, we need a rain shelter. He says we need a tabernacle. We need tabernacles around you. We need protection from you. I mean, what was Peter really thinking as he saw the, the luminescence and the purity and the glory and the weightiness of God? I think if you know your Bible well enough, you can see in verse 5 and 6, fear in his heart. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud, that's the glory of God descending on this mountain, enveloped them, it covered them. Remember Moses, Exodus 33, I want to see your glory. I want to look inside the glory cloud. Just give me a peek at your nature. And God says, you can't do it, but I'll pass by you. You can see my back. No one can see my face and live. And then here, Peter sees the glory of God and it envelops them. It surrounds them and a voice comes out. And that's why verse six, the disciples fall face down. They're terrified. Why? Because they think they're going to die. No one can see God's glory and live. They, they're sure they're going to die. And so why didn't they die? Why not? The answer is right there, verse 7. What did they see as they felt and sensed the glory of God? Why didn't they die? Because if their eyes were shut, which I expect they were, verse 7 says what they saw and the reason that they didn't die in the purity of God's glory. Verse 7 says, they saw Jesus alone. That's the answer at the end of, uh, spoiler alert, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, the climax of the book of Matthew, when on one side of Jerusalem, you've got the cross of Jesus crying out, Father, why have you forsaken me, dying for the sins of the world, taking God's justice in our place so that we don't have to take it. The sign that God vindicated and accepted his son's Jesus's sacrifice was that the temple curtain was ripped in half from top right down to the very bottom. The ultimate sacrifice given by the ultimate prophets and the perfect priest. Jesus is saying there's no need for a temple anymore. There's no need for a tabernacle because I am the temple. It says that in John 2, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up again. He's referring to his body. Now, how can Jesus have the audacity to say that? Because Jesus Christ is the tabernacle. He's the temple of God. Because he's the one that shields me and you from the glory of God. No one can see God's glory and live. And that's why Jesus took the full brunt of God's glory, his perfection, his holy nature against our sin upon himself. And so that now Jesus having taken the penalty that we deserve, having reconciled us by his sacrifice, having paid for our sins and atoned for all our wrongdoing, that fatal nature of God's glory can now not just come near to us, it can be in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. 
not just that Jesus is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so can we be. Because of what he's done, he died on the cross, he lost his glory, he lost his beauty, he lost his impressiveness, he lost his power, he lost his invulnerability, so to speak. All his perfection, all his glory. So that now we can have God's glory in our hearts. It's the promise of the gospel. Jesus, by his spirit, can make us into new people where he can dwell, where we can be reunited with him. He can make us perfect and glorious. They feared for their lives and they looked up and who did they see? They saw Jesus alone. That's the reason why God's glory can come into our life and work in a, in a very hidden but a real way. Because when they opened their eyes, they saw Jesus. He's our tabernacle. He's our temple. He's our high priest. And so how should we respond to him as we finish? Three quick points as we finish. How should we respond to Jesus, our sacrificial lamb and our high priest? Here's the first one. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the glory of God, then we should obey him because he's not a tame God. We should obey him because he's not a tame God. Look at verse five. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The word listen means obey. It's the hyper akuo. Akuo is word that we get acoustics, study of sound and listening. But then you get to hyper here. To hyper here is not just what you do with the ear. It's what you do with your heart. It's what you do with your whole being. To hyper here means to obey. Verse five. This is my son whom I love. Very similar words to Jesus as he was baptized by the Holy Spirit in the early chapters of Matthew's gospel. Listen to him, says Jesus. Says the father rather, of Jesus. Hear him and listen to him with your whole self. It's not something you do on a Sunday virtually at the moment through Zoom alone. Listening and obeying Jesus is something you do at the very axis of your heart and life. Nothing is off limits. Everything is included. No work-life balance here. Being a Christian affects all parts of your life. Your retirement planning, your retirement living, your work-life imbalance as you prioritize the kingdom of God. Working hard for Jesus, earning money for Jesus. It affects your parenting. It affects your solitude. It affects your lockdownness. Everything should revolve about you hearing and centering your person on Jesus. It's not a case of, oh, I wish I were a better Christian and I would do this. Everything depends on and revolves around the axis of your relationship with Jesus. I mean, most of us live in the middle. Most of us try to live for Jesus at some points and then we live for ourselves at another point. And what I love us to say afresh is, Jesus, help me to listen to you with my whole being. I don't want any part of my life to be off limits to you. Command me. Help me to obey you. Because I know that you're not a tame God. It's the first point. If Jesus is who he says he is from Matthew 17, it means we should listen to him with our whole being and orient everything around his person and his nature. But here's the second thing. We should worship him. 
How can we not respond with worship when we see and sense who Jesus is? We should worship God. Why? Not because we're told that we have to, but because he's not a boring God. Throughout the Bible, the word glory means a number of different things, but the word means heaviness. It's the, the sound in the Lord of the Rings film when the ring falls to the ground at bag end and there's a thud. There's a thud of importance and weightiness. That's, that's what the Hebrew word means. It means heavy weightiness, importance. But it's not just that. Just like in this passage, if you go to passages in the Old Testament where you see God's glory on display, Isaiah 6, book of Ezekiel, other places as well, there's, there's often light and colors. Book of Revelation, there's colors on display, often rainbow colors. There are sparks and lights, and the idea that is getting across is not just importance, but, but beauty. Glory is not just about weightiness, it's also about beauty. You can look for beauty in landscapes like today. What a great day to get out. You can look for beauty in someone's eyes or in someone's arms. But the ultimate beauty is in Jesus Christ. I mean, try and get your head around this. The ultimate beauty is seen in Jesus Christ on this mountain as his glory was displayed. But because of the darkness that precedes and follows this passage, you know that God's glory will also be seen on another mountain outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, you're safe in him. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, you are adopted by him. You can come into his presence. You can enjoy his, his smile rather than being afraid that you might die because of his purity in nature. And so that everything you do, everything that you did before might be motivated for a different reason. But now, as a Christian, we're motivated by his delight. We're motivated by his beauty. We're motivated out of joy, not because of works, but as a response to all that Jesus has done, all the beauty that he lost, so all the security that we might gain. You see, God's glory is not just about importance. It's also about beauty. And it's the beauty of God's saving work in Jesus that motivates Christians to do what they do for his glory's sake and to seek his affections but here's the last thing be patient be patient because god is a good god be patient with god because he's a good god at the end of the passage from verses 9 through to verse 13 there's a question that comes to jesus's ears wait a minute if you're the messiah i thought you said that elijah was coming so where's the elijah and jesus says it's john the baptist John the Baptist is the forerunner, and, and now I'm going to go to the cross. Jesus says it again as that dark tone comes back. Think about it in this way. Up on the mountain with the darkness of chapter 16 and into 17, the, the aperture was opened. Or another metaphor is that Jesus is like Clark Kent in his life. He's like Clark Kent, but for a moment you saw his Superman-esque nature. I say that very respectfully. Most of the time, Superman's uh, powers are uh, hidden, but now and again, they're revealed. And in the same way, Jesus' glory is revealed to the max. Four-dimensional glory revealed, and then it's hidden again. But Jesus is at work quietly behind the scenes all the time, 
His glory is hidden from sight. It's hidden from display, but it's at work all the time. Even in the darkness, even in the weakness, he's working. All the stuff that's going wrong in people's lives, Jesus is still at work. He rescued us. He saved us. He paid for our sins. And so when our lives are filled with darkness, when they're filled with disappointment and it feels like they're going downhill, in spite of what we see, God is still at work by his glory and by his grace. I mean, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 puts it like this as we close. He says, our present sufferings are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Uh, our outer bodies are wasting away, but our inner selves is being renewed somewhat like a diamond. And how does a piece of coal become a diamond? It's only through great pressure being exerted. Everything else looks dark on the outside. Dreary, perhaps. But be patient, says Jesus, because I'm a good God. It's revealed in the whole Bible. And because you know when Jesus is in your life, there's always more going on than meets the eye, even in the lockdown.